Okay, in this section of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast, we're going to touch base with Sarah Jane Kelly. She's made a lot of progress on her upcoming independent film, Model Citizens. So on the line with me is uh, Chris Palomares, as always, from the Hello. Uh, chilly plains of Champaign, Illinois. So, Sarah, you had, you know, the big news was that you met the funding goal and that came through. Uh, that was really great. I've already got my coffee cup because I'm now looking forward to seeing my name and thanks to closing credits. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing your name and a lot of <laughs> other names on the film as well. Let yeah. me just first say thank you for having me on again, and thanks to everyone uh, who participated in the campaign and who helped uh, meet the goal and helped us get the, through the next hurdle or over the next hurdle in moving this production along has been slow going, but with that additional funding, it's great to know that I'm going to be able to do things that um, I've already started to do, including travel. I have a brand new 20 terabyte disk array with several backups, so I know that everything I've shot for the last two years has backups, and I don't have to worry about that so much, which is great. There were a number of other great things that came through the Kickstarter campaign, and including not just the funding, but contacts with a lot of people, a lot of advice, a lot of support, a lot of people who um, I was really glad that reached out to me. A few people uh, also will contribute to the film. I found, um, or he found me, a sound editor for the film who is also a model railroader and who works in Hollywood. So excellent. He knows uh, the field and will understand the sounds and, you know, not just the audio, but what trains sound like, which is really important. And a couple of people who are really interested in doing the score who have scored other independent films. So uh, this is really great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone. I can't thank you enough. That's very exciting. I, I got to tell you, sir, that, that, that's very, very exciting to hear about all that. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm really excited because I knew that this was going to go forward and people asked me that along the way, like, what if you don't get the money? Is this going to go forward? It will. That was never a question. But this will make it easier to get it complete within everyone's lifetimes and my schedule for finishing production is early spring. The plan is for completion in the summer of 2015. So it would happen. It's going to make it a lot easier to happen faster and be able to hire the people who I need to hire in order to get real professional quality work and to uh, license some archival footage and to make sure everything's backed up and just to do the right job that I need to do to make sure that this is a professional quality production. Great. It's also very encouraging. I, I got to say that the community came together and supported the project and Everything's looking really good, it sounds like. It, it's great. It's been a great experience. The Kickstarter was a bit of a nail-biter. It <laughs> kind of came down to the wire. I have to give a shout-out to uh, Jimmy D- Diggin, who was a who is executive producer he's a major contributor and he's uh, going to be highly involved in the film and there are a couple other really big contributors it 
it was an unusual campaign for Kickstarter because most of Kickstarter I learn comes through the most of the backers come through Kickstarter people who are on Kickstarter who routinely fund projects but this was a little unusual because only three percent of the backers came through Kickstarter. What that means is 97% of the people and about 200 people backed the project came through the network of model railroaders. That's through all of you guys, people who listen to the podcast, people who uh, the, read the magazines, people who are involved in the community who aren't naturally on Kickstarter. And I think that was a bit of a hurdle for people because a number of people weren't familiar with it or maybe not comfortable with the uh, um, with using that as a forum for fundraising, uh, it worked out, but kind of against all odds because of the strength of the community. That, that's that's amazing. That's amazing that it, it just worked out like that. Yeah, it was interesting, and I got a lot of advice, and I learned a lot through uh, through the campaign. And one of the big lessons I learned is that it the model railroading community is very strong and well connected but it's not necessarily an immediate community there's not the immediacy a number of people just after the campaign ended uh, got in touch with me and said oh I wish I had known about this when it was happening it takes a while sometimes to filter through so people get the message but it's not necessarily um, the immediacy of the usual Kickstarter community you know, I, I I have personally experienced that myself. Just working for Athern, um, it takes a, a couple months for everybody to kind of get on the same page and sort of move in the same direction. So, uh, yeah, I I can identify with that for sure. Definitely. Um, so that that was a real high point, and it's led to the next step. I've taken a few trips since the campaign, um, and I have a few more to go. I visited, I think this was a note from one of our last podcasts, uh, Jack Burgess in the Bay Area. I visited yeah. his layout over Thanksgiving weekend. I did kind of a whirlwind there. I was happy that I was able to see that layout. So many people told me, including you guys, that I should see it. It was amazing. The detail of his modeling and the precision of his approach to the modeling was is pretty amazing. I also visited with Charlie Getz, who's the head of the NMRA, who I was able to interview when I was at the uh, convention over the summer in Cleveland. I met him and his uh, wife, who's wonderful, Margaret, in the Bay Area, and spent some time with them and saw his incredible collection at home, including a built-in hobby shop within his house. So it was a pretty amazing experience. I also interviewed um, Charlie hooked me up with um, Bob Brown, who edits Narrow Gauge and Shortline Gazette. He was great and has a great layout up there, too. And um, spent some time at the uh, Toy Train Holiday at the State Railroad Museum in Sacramento, California, over the weekend. And saw um, one of the big modular uh, railroads of the area, Sacramento Modular Railroaders, set up at the State Museum with a, a few other clubs. So that was really fun. It's, it's holiday time. I don't know. I'm not really sure when this will air, but there's, you know, 
an added emphasis on trains and model railroading this time of year. You see it everywhere. So I'm trying to capture as much of that without being too focused on just the holidays. So I'm not sure how most model railroaders feel about that in terms of you know, it's a wonderful publicity for the holiday, or for the hobby, rather, the holiday. But I hope people realize that, you know, model railroading is a year-round thing. And it, I hope people don't feel like uh, the publicity is just for the season, but that people um, follow it throughout the year. So I'm, I'm a little um, of two minds about going out and covering holiday-oriented model railroading events. I want to make sure I don't focus too much on that and give the perception that it's just for this time of year. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, year-round, but yeah, there is a spike of activity and interest at, at Christmas uh, week. At store traffic will jump starting just right after the beginning of November. It will jump 30 35%. And a lot of that initial interest are people scouting out, hey, this is what I want to do for my kids. What do I need to buy? Then depending upon the child, maybe it's a first train set or guy yesterday brought in a scaled CAD print of the layout he wants to put in his three-and-a-half-year-old son's bedroom. So we just reviewed it, came up with the equipment, and I said, now, you're sure this is for your son? I'm seeing details here and equipment requirements that are exceeding the ability of a three-and-a-half-year-old. But he assured me it was for his son, and he was only there as a technical advisor. So, But you get, you know, the parents become involved, and it's it's just cool. People smile a lot more when they're in the store this time of year. Well, it's a hobby of sharing, too, Paul, you know. Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Chris. That was deep. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm sure this is no surprise to people who have been in the community for a long time. But um, And it's something I experience myself as well, kind of the feeling like it's a guilty pleasure. And having kids around kind of gives us all an excuse to say, oh, well, this is, you know, this is for the kids or this is for, for <laughs> other people. But it's it's funny. Um, a lot of the people I've interviewed and I've talked to and who's – uh, layouts I've shot, especially traveling layouts, modular modular layouts that go to events. There are kids there, and there are families who are watching the the setup and watching the trains go around. But a lot of times, I get the impression that the, the, the people are really there for themselves because it's really not that they don't enjoy interacting f with kids, but for the most part, it's it's pe people really want to be there because they're interested in it personally. Hey, I can identify with that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will post on the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, me in the elf suit. But it, it's a it's a lot of fun. Though. You know, Santa Claus will be at the store for four hours. The guy's donating his time. He's a professional Santa Claus guy, if you will. He's a graphic artist, and he just enjoys doing this. And I opened my mouth and said, well, I'll help. And then, as I mentioned, you know, my wife goes out and buys the uh, the Will Ferrell uh, elf costume for it. So, but I'm looking forward to it. It will be a lot of fun. We'll have cookies, coffee, all that kind of stuff. The kids will get uh, 
There were. Don't give the coffee to the kids, though, Paul. I'm just saying because they might get a little oh, enthusiastic really? about those drinks. Should we give them lattes? Is that what we give the yeah, kids? Well, hey, it's up to you. I'm, 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 I'll, I'll just hear the story afterward. That's, That's right. Here's I'm, an shot of espresso for you. Here's the Orient Espresso. <laughs> so you've been continually working with groups have you how do you or let me ask it this way about how far along as far as collecting or creating video do you feel you are you know it's it's a moving target and i'm trying to make it not one because the the more i get into it and the more i shoot the more i feel i need to and i think my big challenge right now is really organization i think the fact that i have this giant new 20 terabyte drive is going to make things a lot easier but there are a number of people who have emailed me and i have mental notes in my head that i need to interview this person and i need to get to that layout and i need to yeah. go here and i need to go there and what was this person's name again and where was their layout so i'm kind of in the position of going back through all my email now because i had so many great conversations with people especially during the campaign but all yes. throughout and I remember I need to interview this person I need to see this layout but who was this person how can I find it I haven't you know that's that's been one of my big challenges is being as organized as I should be um, I would say probably last time I talked to you I might have said that I was halfway to three quarters of the way through yeah. I've done a lot of shooting since then, and now I would probably still say halfway to three-quarters of the way through um, because the more I shoot, the more I feel I need to. Um, there are, however, some very specific themes that I'm focusing on where I know for sure that I need to go to certain places and I need to get some specialized kind of footage I know that I need to get for instance to the Amherst Railway Society show in January in Massachusetts and I think that was another one of your recommendations um, I need to get back to a number of groups or people from certain regions who are involved in the campaign um, tip me off to some clubs and some communities in different parts of the United States um, Pennsylvania, New York area. I'll probably travel around New York a bit when I'm in Massachusetts for for the Amherst show. Toronto, okay. there's a big group there, uh, a number of people there and groups. And there's also this kind of, in the back of my head, there are a few people who I've heard from people from England, Australia, there, there was somebody from the Netherlands and I think Norway who contributed to the campaign. There was another man in Mexico City who said there's a really vibrant model railroading community in Mexico City. And I've gone back and forth with him a couple times. There is. I would love to go down to Mexico City and shoot uh, uh, some. That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? So there are kind of a few pie-in-the-sky things where I'm hoping if I can – swing it it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge going 
internationally if I can do it. Um, for a minute there, I thought I was going to Toronto, and now it's a little bit more complicated. Um, but, you know, in terms of principal shooting, I would say I'm maybe three-quarters of the way through. But in terms of if I add that pie in the sky, like can I swing a trip to Mexico City? Can I bring equipment internationally, or how much equipment can I get away with? Um, yeah. You know, that's one of the big challenges with uh going anywhere, flying anywhere, um, driving is fine, even long distances, I can throw equipment in the car and go, but when it comes to packing up equipment for the, a flight, um, I have to be really lean and mean as to what I can bring, and it's always kind of a challenge. Doing that internationally, I'm, I'm not really sure of the logistics, but I would love to make it to Mexico City. Unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish, so I would need a lot of help there. But um, So hopefully, I know I'll get the principal shooting done, but I would love to get a couple one or two exotic locations so hopefully we can get that done there are also other kind of fun things that have come up um i i kind of hesitate to mention this i bought a drone the other day uh (laughs) the prices have come down i didn't not the real high-end one just kind of the uh, the basic $600, $700 model. Um, It's a new one. It fits. I have a GoPro, so it's not um, it's not a heavy big DSLR rig with you know a lot of weight behind it. Um, But I am really looking forward to shooting some live steam, shooting some garden railroads, shooting some more outdoor um, footage with the GoPro on a, um, on a drone. So it's still legal. The FAA hasn't cracked down yet. So I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, make sure that I get to some really great locations and some great, uh, full-size rail locations, the Tehachapi Pass, some kind of really famous rail fan locations as well without getting arrested or fined by the FCC. I think that's uh, fantastic. That is, uh, I think that's a really innovative approach. I'm now, excited. Well, I'm really excited about that. I, I well, the good news is, for, you know, I, I hear about all the quadcopter stuff on in Horizon, and the good news is the FAA is loosening up a little bit about, um, you know, just the quadcopters and um vehicles with cameras on them and stuff so i i think your your chances of being arrested now are are, are much less and they're going to continue to dwindle you know so well i'll try keep to keep up the good out, work thank you i'm <laughs> to try to stay out of residential areas i we moved recently but we used to live next door to a professional uh photographer who had a, a very expensive big um drone and a dslr that was hooked up to it and every once in a while we'd be in the backyard and the drone would come up and and i'd have to make sure that uh everyone was decent and there was nothing embarrassing going on but um i plan to take it into a pretty neutral area i'm not going to be in residential areas so hopefully i i read up on some of the rules i have to be three three miles at least from the nearest airport i think i'm about six so we should be good there i'm hoping not to fly it into any power lines or do anything like that but it, it should be a lot of great footage. well well, well to just anybody that sees a drone sort of hovering around their house just get out the broom and swat it like a fly you know <laughs> we'll see how it goes um 
it's it should be arriving tomorrow so i'm going to spend the i'm going to spend a while learning to control it i'm hoping to get in touch with some live steam people who wouldn't mind me um give me a couple weeks at least to learn how to fly it before i come out but um so that's really the next one of the next things little side projects for model citizens that I want to do is get in touch with some live steam people. And I would love to do some drone shooting as, uh, you know, as the live steam train goes by from all angles and hopefully steer clear of the trees or anything in the way. Well, now I'm curious, what's the physical size of this thing? Um, it, I haven't received it yet, but I'm, it's not that big. It's, it's probably, it's like less than two feet across. Okay. That's pretty good size, I think. Yeah. It's, it's big enough. I mean, the GoPro is really tiny, so it's just a, you know, it, it's hmm. just a few pounds, but, um. Okay. <laughs> Compared to a crane shot, Paul, where, I mean. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the quadcopters that hold the GoPros are pretty compact for sure. Oh, that's that's cool. That's going to have to be on my Christmas list for next year, I think. The prices have think... really come down for the ones just for the ones with the GoPro. They're lighter. Okay. Yeah, th- then we can like have a drunk like cruise around you when you're in your elf suit and we could get you from all Yes, areas. yes you could. You could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, we'll have to schedule that a little in advance. Yes. <laughs> it just holds still. Hold on. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sarah, I'm curious because you mentioned, uh, and I don't think we've talked about this specifically in the past sessions, but how about for us equipment geeks, just give us a rundown of what type of camera are you using? Well, um, I have a few that I'm using and some of the equipment is getting a little bit uh, a little bit old um, <laughs> so I'm thinking of replacing uh, some of that so I do I do have uh, the GoPro kind of a basic model it's one of the original ones the it's it's HD but it's really small I don't do a lot of shooting with that that's mostly um, I guess it will be the aerial shots and any layout shots. It's kind of a good kick around camera to just kind of put put on a layout or put on a flatbed on a on a, a model railroad. Um, my principal shooting so far has been on a Canon XA10, um, which is there now a couple new generations that are even better. So this is a couple generations back. It's a really nice little camera and for anyone who's seen me shooting at a show or anything that's the camera that I primarily lug around with me it's very forgiving it's uh it's very adaptable to different light situations it's it's kind of the smallest smallest professional camera that you could get a couple years ago okay uh, they might have been they might be a little bit smaller now and then I have a, a Nikon DSLR uh uh, 5200 D5200, um, and that I do a little bit of video on that, and I do still photography on that, and um, probably will be investing in another camera sometime soon. Okay, so are they two further questions now that my interest is peaked? I presume these are high definition uh, capable. Yes, they're all HD. Okay, so is that 720p, 1080p? 
it's, which one are you doing? It's well, it's funny because I have to like anything that you see on the on the site comes down to seven. It, it comes comes down to what is it seven twenty? Yes. For that's the maximum that you can do on on Vimeo, but it's ten eighty. Okay. Um, it shoots at a higher resolution than you can see okay. on the website. So the, that's the reason why I'm having such a storage issue is yeah. because these files are, you know, t- multiple gigabytes for each even tiny little two-minute clip or, or the raw, vid- uh, raw footage itself is just so enormous. And, you know, even if I end up, you know, the the what I use is going to be like a very small fraction of what I shoot, but I have to keep everything that I've shot so far. So it's, you know, I've filled up about eight terabytes of videos of uh, memory in my storage so far. And I've just bought the 20 terabytes. So it's, you know, hopefully that's going to be enough, but it's, you know, the, the, quality of the video is so high that we can't even see it online because we have to take it down so okay. so much just to be able to be streamable and to be visible so the good news is the final product is going to be higher quality than what you see on my website or on Vimeo okay well now which then begs the question what is the medium how is this stored Currently, when you're shooting, is it on a, a flash, you know, a flash type drive or what? Um, currently, I, I use um, cards. I use okay. um, SD HD cards. Okay. So I think a lot of different kinds of equipment use them. I run out of space pretty quickly. There's some built-in memory on the Canon camera, and the GoPro runs out in about 40 minutes, but the battery okay. runs out too. So. Uh, but for the main camera, that's the the storage. It's pretty much just the you know a little bit of built-in memory and the SD cards. Okay, and so then you've got dollies and floating head tripods and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that, in terms of the hardware a, equipment, yeah. Um, yeah. it depends on you know how how much I'm willing to schlep to each shoot and how far <laughs> I'm going. Yeah. Um, that's the real stripped down um, package, and this is what I had to take. Well, I guess there's a couple a real stripped down, like on the fly, if I'm just kind of visiting a club casually and I'm not really sure if I'm going to be able to interview anyone or if there's going to be a sit-down opportunity or if they're, I'm just going to be kind of stealing shots between kids and families. Then I'll just pretty much bring the camera on a rig. I've got a um, small shoulder rig for that uh, that makes it a little bit easier to hold on to in balance and make it um, steadier. And I'll have probably a a light attached to the camera and an additional light. And I have kind of a, I keep it permanently on there. It's an additional shotgun mic that um, just kind of stays on the camera. So it's the external light, the shotgun mic, the rig, and the camera. That's really stripped down. In my camera bag, I also always bring my lavalier mic. So if somebody wants to, if I can um, get somebody to 
give me a tour and talk if it's quiet enough place shows are really bad for audio because they're so loud um, but I like to put a mic on someone if they're touring me through their layout um, so I will have two mics running and that's a really good backup too in case one of the mics isn't uh, isn't working if there's some kind of feedback I always have a backup which is nice okay. um, so that's the real basic one um, when I go to the the plane trips that I've taken with my stripped down equipment I've brought that um, I kind of consolidate everything into one bag I bring I also bring the still camera I bring the DSLR to every shoot and the GoPro sometimes the GoPro comes out sometimes it doesn't what I like to do is I like to set up the GoPro to shoot the making of <laughs> so as I'm shooting someone I'll put the GoPro on a little tripod somewhere shooting the shooting if I can, if it makes sense, if there's enough room. And then um, I'll use the Nikon to maybe take some layout shots while I'm there, if I can. And then I also have this big kind of horrible, heavy, it's not heavy if it's empty, but it's always heavy when I'm traveling through airports, this giant tripod case. It's a big, heavy, molded plastic thing. Yeah. And, and I put a... Heavy tri a big tripod, a monopod, a mic stand actually, portable light that goes on top of the mic stand, and also my my rig that I disassemble, and that's about I don't know feels heavier, but maybe it's about fifty pounds. Maybe it's only thirty pounds. It's really heavy, and when I bring it to the airport. It's all sealed up, and I've got wire ties strapping it shut so it doesn't fly open at the airport. But people are always <laughs> kind of leery and avoiding me because they think it's a gun or a bomb or something. People are always asking me, what's in there? What's in there? <laughs> so it's it's always a bit of a challenge traveling with that, with the lights and with the tripods, but uh, or the tripod and the monopod, but it's definitely necessary to have at least that minimal equipment. I have additional um a couple different stands i've got a green screen that doesn't generally travel with me it's huge um i've got reflectors and light boxes that sometimes go out with me if i can but generally those can't make it on the plane with me so i've got a few different configurations okay now when you at whatever point you determine you've got enough uh, raw footage and you begin the editing process, uh, do you rent a facility uh, with all the computers to do this? Or are you going to do it at your house on your own computer? How's that going to happen? Well, I do all, I've been doing all the editing myself so far with the little snippets, the little, um, the little items on the website. I am going to do the editing of the footage, the visuals, the video. I am not going to be doing, thank God, the editing of the audio, um, okay. which I think is a lot harder. I'm going to do the rough edits. I'm going to select, of course, the interview snippets and the items that I want to use, and I'll, uh, I will supply those to the sound editor who will be able to um, take all the raw audio and make it as good as possible and marry it all to the score 
we'll have a professional score done and um, that will all be then married to the video itself to the edited um, footage so I will do a rough cut and we will match the audio which will be farmed out um, but I'm looking forward to working with the sound editor he's in Los Angeles he's not too far from here and like I said he's um, he's a professional who knows the industry has the ability to rent or get access to sound facilities so he's gonna really be a huge huge asset I'm not saying his name now not for any particular reason I'm not sure if he I'm sure he probably wouldn't object, but I should probably check with him before <laughs> I start blabbing about him. But he's, okay. he's doing a great job. Um, uh, he's going to do a great job. And the fact is he's very enthusiastic about the project. And he said, you know, this is something that where I can give you some advice in terms of having to do some sound design as well, uh, knowing how trains sound, knowing how model railroading works, I can make sure that a sound isn't inappropriate or wrong, that this is actually what you want for this. So that's going to be really helpful, and I think he's going to really lead the way with the sound. It always helps to have an enthusiast that is excited about the project and as well as being able to contribute, you know. Oh, yeah. So that's really, really essential. And then there, as I mentioned, there are two people um, who are interested in doing the score, both of whom have worked for independent films and won awards and are uh, real professionals. And um, I'm going to be... I'm going to have an embarrassment of riches in terms of the talents to choose from and figuring out the best way um, to make the most of everyone's contributions. Okay, so you look towards sometime mid-2015 to have this ready. Yes. So then when would you logically begin the showings, if that's the right term, at the independent film festivals? And which then leads to the question, uh, which venues, you know? Is this a Sundance thing? What do you, how do you see that unfolding? I, I hope it's a Sundance thing. We'll, we'll see. As as my date keeps wobbling, my date for finalizing, um, yeah. it's my thought about what to enter when kind of changes. My, my approach is just going to be basically every credible film festival I will enter. Okay. Um, and I will just go by when I'm finished and whatever is available – that's credible, that's a good festival, I will enter it as soon as I can. Um, on a, you know, they have rolling, you know, there are film festivals throughout the year, so it's not all, as far as I've seen, you know, it's not all one month or one particular time period. So, you know, of course, Sundance is a big one, but there are a lot of great regional festivals. There are a lot of great independent festivals here and there. So I'm just going to kind of go all out and enter as many as I possibly can. Well, you know, I think the Marrero community will kind of huddle around the, the film that you create and sort of support it wherever it goes. So no matter... What, what festival you enter it in, I, I see success out of that. You know, it's kind of like your Kickstarter. A, a lot of the Monterey community sort of pulled together for that, and I think the same is going to happen to that too. 
definitely, it's just going to be a bit of a challenge for me to get the word out early. I'm, I learned my lesson. <laughs> I need to get the word out early, early, early before I start. I think in retrospect, there was a lot going on when I started the Kickstarter and there's a lot of prep work for the Kickstarter and a number of hoops that you have to jump through. And it was such an arduous process. I just kind of wanted to get it going. Um, so it, if I, um, I hesitate to say this, but I may do another one for post-production. Um, we will see. It may or may not be Kickstarter. Um, that would cover the cost of this. Uh, cost of additional um, sound editing and the score if I'm not able to, if I've already <laughs> run through all the money by then, I might need to raise an additional uh, l bit of money. We'll see how it goes. Um, but at the same time, I, I realize that also, in addition to putting out the word, I need to be better about explaining the process because there are a lot of people who were in the community who were really encouraging and helpful and really wanted to help and contribute. Um, but like I had said before, were maybe not comfortable with the venue of Kickstarter. Or, and this is the other thing, it was really touching, but a little bit, I wasn't really quite sure how to handle it. But a number of people contacted me during the campaign, and even I think after the campaign, and said, you know, I'd love to contribute to this. I don't want to sign up for another um, online membership. Let me give me your address. I'll send you a check for a hundred bucks or something like that. So I got a number of people who said that, and I felt bad about it. But I told them, uh, you know, thank you, but I can't do that. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I wanted to make sure one that the Kickstarter was funded, and if the goal wasn't met, no money would be raised. And two, I just kind of didn't feel like it was appropriate or professional. You know, everyone had great intentions. I'm, I'm not saying anything about that. It was wonderful. It was really heartwarming to hear from people. But in terms of me wanting to be above board, in terms of, you know, I have to pay taxes on the Kickstarter. I have to, you know, this is fully declared <laughs> finances. I have to make sure that I'm following the letter of the law and the idea of accepting money on the side just starts seemed to me like it might not be the greatest thing for the professionalism of the film. So okay. I wanted, I, I will really rely on the community, which came together in such a great way, especially considering these challenges of the technology and the unfamiliar, the tool of Kickstarter, which is something I haven't really used. Um, I did a couple, I backed a couple projects, but I'm not a big Kickstarter user. But going back to what we were talking about with the film festivals, that's a community that's probably not, it's not something I'm, in, I'm deeply involved in, and I don't expect that a lot of the model railroading community is very familiar with either. So that's going to be a big challenge, making it clear what what it is that I'm doing and trying to bring together the fact that this is a movie about model railroading that I'm trying to um, use to depict the hobby accurately and to do honor to the hobby and to make to maybe draw some more people in it 
into it, but at the same time, I want to make it a really interesting watch for people who aren't in the hobby, something that's really has broad appeal, something that has interest beyond the hobby. And so I'm bringing those two worlds together. So the independent film world is not exactly the same as the model railroading world, but I hope to be able to kind of bridge that gap. I know that was a lot. That's all right. <laughs> I mean, it's the big, it's the fundamental challenge that I've had all along because I, you know, there were some really great supporters who I heard from, and some people went, I went back and forth with on email, who were really great during the campaign. They said, "How are you doing? How's it going? How's it going?" And there were updates, and there were suggestions, and there were people who um, put ads in their their newsletters and gave plugs, and you know, the the community really came out which was great um you know and it's still there's still i think a lack of clarity sometimes about what exactly it is that i'm doing so i have to make it clear um because people are very willing to support the project even without not necessarily knowing what exactly it it is i mean most people know it's video but um the fact that the independent film angle i don't know that everyone's completely clear that that's what this is going to be well i think uh, going back to the to the kickstarter you know because i would go on there and monitor it because we had talked about it on the uh, previous podcast and so i was participating it seemed to me at the as you approached your uh, deadline that boy at the end there was a i'll just say huge groundswell of uh support that threw you over the top yes there was a lot of interest at the end but i have to say there were a couple people toward the very end that doubled their pledges so a number of people there were a few people who came in at the last minute but i think most of the big money that came in at the very end were people who had already pledged and doubled or increased their pledges a number of people went back and increased it as it came down to the wire I think there's a, a sense of immediacy and understanding across the board and model railroading that, hey, people don't know what they don't know. And unless if we get this out, and I think people are really cognizant about this and wanting to get the information out to just any, to get, get, people don't know what they haven't experienced yet. So, Hey, if there's a way to just kind of get the word out in some sort of way, there's there's a real sense of urgency in this. So I, I could see why people would double their their pledges at the last minute. You know, definitely. And I think people were excited about being involved in one way or another. And um, I thought that was really, you know, it was really exciting. It was kind of a I felt very connected to the community, um, and I still do. But definitely um, during that time, in particular. Um, and I know that, you know, a number of people want to see their vision in the film. And I guess my my one thing that I would like to put out there is that I, you know, bottom line, I want to faithfully represent the hobby. I want to do a really good job. But at the same time, I do know that a number of people will be dissatisfied at some level if I don't do X, Y, or Z. And I've heard from a number of people who said, well, you know, you have to, you really have to do 
this, you have to do it, you know, not as a 90-minute film, but you have to do it as something else. You have to do this, and you have to do these other installments, and which is great to hear, but that's really not the plan, and I hope that everyone um, understands that I'm not going to be able to make the exact film that everybody wants and make it, you know, give it widespread appeal, mainstream appeal. Well, that's the reason why Cosmos by Carl Sagan wasn't one episode, you know. <laughs> but yeah, well, at the <laughs> moment, I'm not planning to do, to do a series. This is just one for now. We'll see where it goes. Well, I'm I'm just saying it, it's <laughs> it, it's hard to bring the entire universe of model railroading into one episode, so things are going to be you know selective. Yeah, I just feel a little bit of pressure. I feel so committed to the community, and whenever I hear something like that, I, I get a little stressed out. I think, oh, but I'm not going to be able to do that. I'll you know I'll come close, but I'm not you know if I do whatever the suggestion is this is not going to be a watchable film outside of the community so i have to be very careful about you know not letting one or two voices kind of take me away from the central vision of making this a a watchable film that's going to be interesting to all all kinds of people well i i think it's just that you got to go with what you feel is going to be the most watchable version of it and, and just own it. Um, a lot of people might kind of throw some really interesting tidbits at you about, Hey, the, you know, model railroading is also this, and it's also that, but you got to go with your vision because that's, what's going to make the film great. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, there are more, more of the people who I talk to, it's it's just the same as modeling of model railroading styles. You know, some people are really liberal and some clubs are really open in the way they represent uh, a particular era or a particular, or maybe no era at all. There are some clubs who, that I've visited who are just, well, we're kind of freestyle. We do our own thing. We run diesel. We run steam. We're not any particular era. But I think there's definitely that um, a very strong and important part of the hobby that is very meticulous and detailed and is committed to making sure that the facts are correct, everything is prototype, and everything is exactly as it is. And I think that's a fascinating part of the hobby that it's definitely going to have a major part in the film, but it can't apply to the film itself, if, if that's clear, the fact that... Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's just, I, I would say, person, personal taste. A, lo a lot of guys are open to just, hey, you know, Ma Ray Rodin's entertainment, and then there's... Uh, an equally important faction that's just already is recreating history and it's important. So there's no wrong way to introduce it. It's just, they're so radically different at times that it's hard to kind of bridge that gap, even that, within model rarity, you know, it's kind of funny that way. And that's part of what's, you know, going to be one of the, the main aspects of the film showing that there are these different viewpoints that are really serious and very interesting that people come at it from very different perspectives with very different visions of what it is and what it should be. But I don't want to take all the fun out of it. <laughs> you 
know. I, I think it's going to be fun regardless. You know, um, it, just having from the outside looking in perspective is going to be fantastic. And a lot of people, we, we get so insular about, um, hey, we're model railroaders. We communicate with other model railroaders. We, uh, we have a trained lifestyle. So it's kind of fun to sort of on the outside looking in, you know. Oh, definitely. I, th- I don't think it would be possible to do a broad film as an insider, something that would be, I mean, it's probably possible, but I'm very grateful that I'm coming in as an outsider and I can see all these things with fresh eyes. I hope they stay fresh as I continue to interview people and and tour layouts. Cool. So you mentioned, so your target for this is what, 90 minutes? Yes. Full length, 90 minute independent film. Okay. Your classic film festival indie film. Okay. So you're going to, are you going to uh, have DVD, Blu-ray copies available that can be purchased? I will. Um, Some of that, you know, a number of the people who backed uh, the Kickstarter are going to get DVDs. So those will be made. Um, But in terms of, you know, the goal of, you know, there are a few different goals of film festivals um, there, you know, you can win awards, you can get exposure, you can get all sorts of deals for other things. But one of the main the main objectives is to get distribution. So, okay. um, if things go well at one or more of these festivals, um, the idea would be that this, you know, somebody, you know, at, at the highest level, and I'm not necessarily holding my breath for this to happen. Like a a, a big distributor would buy the film and it would become a you know a, a major motion picture that's not really where i'm expecting this to go i'm expecting it to be kind of a smaller distribution but i would like to get get it out there you know there are all sorts of um unconventional and new ways that people are distributing films these days like on netflix for instance yes. maybe on hulu on a yes. number of new channels that didn't exist a few years ago so that's really encouraging that there are a lot of different ways to get the film out there i would love to see have as many people see it as possible but i'm wide open as to as to who picks it up and i hope that somebody does okay yeah i could see this being Available, like you mentioned, on Hulu or Netflix or on uh, public uh, TV. Well, just on a side note, you guys, just I discovered on Hulu Tracks Ahead, and that was a PBS oh, oh. documentary, and they have the entire series on Hulu. Really? Yes. That so if that TV. isn't encouraging, I don't know what is. I mean, that's great. That's. I mean, that's part of the whole idea of you know why i'm able to do this right now because this would have been prohibitively expensive just a few years ago um you know the the there are so many more ways to get things done and to get audiences to see your uh product these days um so i'm really counting on some kind of some some new opportunities coming up so i'm gonna be you know i'm so preoccupied with filming right now that i'm not thinking enough toward that but as i move into post-production i'm definitely going to um, put a lot more time and effort into research into you know publicity and things like that 
Well, what kind you know, of really neat things have you stumbled on since we last talked? You know, where you went out for one reason and all of a sudden it just evolved into something much larger or an insight into a group. Do you have any of those epiphanies like that? Well, I've had a number of them over the last few months. And forgive me, I forget when we talked last. I think we talked after the convention. Is that correct in the summer? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that's about right. Um, when I was out there, I, th- I probably mentioned on the last podcast that um, I ran into or I – visited, I shouldn't say ran into, but I visited a club in York, Pennsylvania, where I I met um, um, one of a group from the weathering shop. You might have heard of them. They they specialize in weathering. uh, Butch Uh, Eiler. Christensen and guys like that. Yeah, Butch Eiler, Gary Christensen. Which is great. And I didn't get to spend enough time out there um, because I was kind of bouncing from club to club to club. But um, I do plan to get back there. And I probably mentioned on the podcast last time that um, Butch and the the other members of the weathering shop uh, do weathering. And uh, Butch in particular does the representation of actual uh, graffiti from railroad cars and does a really uh, great job at that, um, going out to rail yards and and taking pictures of graffiti and, and replicating it. Um, so I think I probably mentioned before that one of the, his favorite artists who he follows, whose work he replicates, goes by the name of Ichabod, and he's an actual street artist who actually has done TED Talks, and he's he's kind of a known person um, in the art world. And the more I pay attention to this world, this kind of convergence between art, like art, street culture, art culture, um, and galleries becoming interested in this and model i am seeing this convergence between model railroading and the art world and kind of urban culture that's really interesting there's a show in San Francisco i think it just ended at the end of november at a gallery a fairly new gallery um in the city and the the show is called derailed 2 there's a num a number of these shows that go on around the country and it's boxcar art it's not from the model railroading community but it's it's train oriented from the art world so we see this or i'm seeing this kind of really great opportunity to maybe bring artists together um people who are fascinated by the same things that rail fans are and that some model railroaders are, but come at it from such a different perspective um, that I find really fascinating. And I'm interested in this as a way to bridge those cultures. I see that, you know, there's a very strong interest in trains and in um, kind of, I think we talked about the steampunk movement, sort of the, interest in old-time machinery and um, among young people, among hipsters that find these things so much cooler than previous generations that a lot of modern railroaders, maybe not, not yet, but maybe they will soon realize that there's this audience here that they haven't really tapped into, that they're just on the fringes of this, these two worlds. And they could explode into this other world where young people um, 
are really interested in the art and in the um, kind of just the symbolism of traveling of model you know of the rail cars there are these shows <laughs> everywhere these days it's just kind of interesting to see woodland scenics in galleries and in hobby shops you know kind of that crossover appeal i'm seeing it everywhere you know i i, I noticed that sarah i i have a number of very young friends that entered into the hobby based upon the street art cultural side of it they became interested in trains through um a different medium than than you know the 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 typical sort of we get a train set we set it up we like trains these there there's a crew of people that got interested in model railroading through i saw that street art i saw it on this boxcar what is it how can i duplicate it how can i have that as a piece of my own you know and I, I think it's it's expanding, and we're going into different realms that just never have been really uh, thought of into a mainstream model railroading culture before. Exactly, and th- those people, a lot of that art community, they, they're very interested in building models. And I find myself talking to people in that community as well as the model railroading community, I'm having the same conversations about 3D printing, about modeling. You know, this, these are very different groups on the surface, but they have the same interests and talk about the same things. I, I can see also a gamer aspect coming into it, too, because they're doing the same things as well. I'm definitely, you know, you know I'm definitely seeing that. <laughs> and I, I, I'm seeing guys come in and just like, hey, I want to do this sort of thing i want to have this sort of strategy behind it and they're a gamer sort of um focused on hey i want to get into the strategy behind you know uh, an economy and stuff and i've heard that i've encountered that a lot lately in in operations groups um and there's an interview i'm waiting to edit hopefully soon where that's exactly what there are two men who are part of an n-scale club talk about um, they talk about the gamer aspect, the role-playing aspect. Somebody also mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. Um, f- those kinds of role-playing games, whether they're video or whether they're kind of they predate video games, it's that sort of appeal um, that is another interesting wrinkle, a- another very interesting aspect of the hobby that can bring in you know people like me who are kind of old-time geeks from uh, from back in the day who are interested in these really kind of um, what used to be fringy but has become because of the internet more of a mainstream sort of just one of many things that people do these days so you know I, I interviewed somebody not too long ago who who talked about role-playing games and talked about, he was a model railroader, talked about how he does those as well as um, running trains, which to him, are they're very similar in why he wants to do, his motivations for doing both. I, I think that's fantastic. And I, I just think there's going to be even more of that sort of exposure to the hobby on both the art side, game side. And, and, and there's going to be other ways that people enter it that we haven't even thought of yet. And it's exciting. Definitely. I think this is really looking looking out from a new pinnacle right now. I just for, hope everyone's open-minded. You know, when you 
when you're used to doing things one way for such a long period of time, um, sometimes it can be hard to accept some new new blood into what you're doing and people who are interested in it for maybe different reasons than, than yourself. But hopefully there's room for everyone and, and um, people are accepting. Well, you know, I see it as there's no choice. I mean, the, the hobby can't continue as as it is forever. I mean, there as just generations sort of cycle in and bring in their own sort of um, fingerprint into it. It's it's going to evolve, and it's that's just how it's going to be. So, I, I'm excited about it. I, I I think that this is a real dynamic time for model rarity. Definitely. I think it's just like a lot of things that have happened after um, the internet and social media. You know, I teach journalism and, you know, years ago people were lamenting, oh, journalism's dying, newspapers are going away. But I think there's a real parallel to model railroading because as the old ways might be dying out, there are a million new ways. There's all sorts of things happening online. There's ways of community building that we didn't have before. Social media has really connected people. So I, instead of thinking this is the end of the line for model railroading, I really do think that it's going to be a lot more diverse. I don't think, like you said, I don't think it's going to be the same thing it was before, but I do think there's a big future ahead. What do you think, Paul? I'm sorry. Did did you not see my text that said BRB? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I did not. <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> Uh, so did that mean the uh, lead in and I'll give you my opinion? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that model railroading, the, the future is not really defined for it yet. And it, it's very encouraging to see the, the different, um, I'd say how you describe them as being different fringes sort of come into it. And even though they might not be considered model railroading yet, I think that circle is kind of uh, opening up a little bit more, and we're, we're going to see some new uh, developments as far as that into into what is considered mall railroading. Well, I I personally think over, and it could be as uh, short of a time period as five years, we will see you know dramatic changes in the uh, technology that enable model railroaders, for instance, battery power replacing power transmission via track. I don't know about all that, Paul. Two-way decoder communication, because if you go to battery power, then you've got to have another way in DCC of getting the the code, the commands, and so forth to the uh, decoders. Ring already does that. You know, so there's some morphing to be done, but I think some of these new potential aspects or developments will attract a new segment into the hobby. Yeah, uh, the you know, geeks I, I will respond to geeky things. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it, it's not a geek thing anymore; it's a people thing, and okay, people, it, it, it's a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean. The, the whole connotation of geek and all that, that that's sort of dying out with, like, the 90s. Well, you know, that's getting, that gets further and further behind us. And the new generation is coming up, and it's just like, we're all geeks. We're all mm-hmm. nerds. We're all, you know, people. 
who cares? Now that we you have know? access to the all the great things that we might not have had access to, and to like in terms of technology, yeah, I've been to a number of clubs lately where people were controlling their trains with their iPhones or their right. galaxies. You know, there's it's not uh, it's not a fringy thing anymore. You know, technology no. is there. Yeah, it, it, and when it's, I said it's available, it's abundant. Yes. <laughs> when I said geek, I didn't mean it in a derogatory manner i guess maybe i was saying that well people who are you know fascinated by the electronics the the code uh that aspect that may draw people into it uh, you know you know paul I, i'd say the only generation now that thinks that geek and nerd and all that stuff is a derogatory <laughs> sort of connotation yeah. is you know, I'd say Generation X and probably previous. A- any any other generation? They're like, yeah, so what? Well, I think there's a it's a badge <laughs> you know. of honor these days because the hipsters are the people who might have been called geeks in the past, and I I say it proudly. You know, I would be happy to you know share my. Uh, unusual interests with people because I think a lot of people want to do that these days now that we realize that there's a lot more out there than just what was mainstream 20 years ago. Okay, I'm going to retract my statement. and I'm going to back- <laughs> You better, man. <laughs> I am going to say the people who are techno-savvy may be drawn into the hobby because of the changes in the technology on how the, the information is transmitted. And so the techno-savvy, there you go. Techno-savvy, that sounds sort of like a band groupie. <laughs> oh, techno-savvy sounds, a, a, I don't know, It's I kind of, <laughs> I, like, I like geeky a little bit better, but uh, uh, each his own, uh, I suppose. Okay. You know, uh, hey, people that understand tech, there, there is a learning curve to model railroading as far as like getting things operational, getting things kinetic, getting, making them move. Yeah. And there, there, there is a bit of a struggle to do it. And yeah, there is a side that kind of demands someone get familiar with the tech side of things. And to, to each his own, some guys have no interest in that at all. They're just, hey, I just want to create art. You know, yeah. I want to make this as amazing as I possibly can, take a few photos of it, and post it up larger than life. And, you know, it, it, it's such a huge gap between those two people that when you actually bring them together and you have them work together, they create something that's kinetic and moves, and it looks amazing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity yet, and I think that's probably part of the appeal coming into um, some of the, the younger audiences. Like, it's whatever you want to make it out to be, you know. Well, and I also- You're not confined by air. You're, you're not confined by airspace. Like, you take the drone and, like, well, I can only fly, like, 100 feet in the air before I get busted. You know, it's like, well, I can make this track a thousand feet long and, uh, you know. Well, a number of the people who are kind of inclined, whatever we want to say, technologically inclined or or however we want to call it, uh, a lot of them have told me, and I understand this completely, there's a, a thrill in creating and controlling your own world. 
it's just the same as like a fiction writer or anyone else who's creating their own world. It's just an exciting thing to do, and you can do that visually, um, and you can do it physically as a model railroader, and, and so many more dimensions than if you're writing something. It's it's a pretty great thing. Well, it's not just creating your world; it's also attaching it to you know, moments of history that were iconic, like the streamliner era where everything was kind of smooth and, you know, curved and swept back and stuff. And, you know, you think about the roaring twenties and stuff and you, you, you get to sort of interact with that history in a more tangible level than you would just by watching a movie or reading a book or something, you know, like you could even travel. put your own yeah, in a way, when you can put your own little fingerprint on it, you know, and I, I think that's appealing to a lot of people. I yeah, and to expand on that, I think some of the aspects become or allow us to become more immersed in the hobby. Uh, Sarah touched right. on it a minute ago, where you create a deeper experience, and I don't mean experience in any metaphysical way or anything, but just as sound has brought a new dimension to model railroading. I don't know, Paul. Some people would consider sound as being pretty metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's very, uh, how I, I would describe it as a, a, a new way to sort of be a part of, um, you know, a moment is with sound and actually hearing and seeing and all well, that. It certainly you know, brings so. another dimension of, of uh, realism to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a recreation of, it's a replica. And the sound right. is a part of creating that replica. I find, you know, because we've talked about it on here a lot, I find that just so fascinating. You guys release incredible locomotive products over there, with, be it Ready to Run or your Genesis line. To me, the ones with sound, whether I put the sound in myself or... It comes from the factory with sound. It's just a whole different paradigm uh, for me of enjoyment. And right. based upon the feedback and what I see in the store when we're operating the uh, the railroad for customers, yeah, and the kids, the kids' eyes just light up because it's not just a, a silent, moving, uh, almost snake-like going across the track. Now it's it's got sounds. We can blow the horns when we go by the kids and have them wave at the engineers and stuff, you know, and, and the kids just eat it up instead of the parents. And I like being able to create that. I, I can completely understand that. Yes. And it causes me to spend more money. I have no problem with it. But you, you know, I kind of, looking into your your crystal balls here and and for trying to foretell where the hobby is going i mean it's expanding and i i see a a, a much more diverse um population ex becoming more openly model railroading not just it's not just it'd be for women too because there's so much to offer anyone you know mm -hmm. so um, men women children Boy, girl, hey, this is a, a this is a hobby that really has something for everyone, and we've known this for a long time. And you know, Sarah's video is really this is 
an opportunity to really highlight that and what she, what she's doing is just amazing and I, I've I've watched her um, her her little snippets on a is it a Vimeo? Um, I have a website which is modelcitizens.com. Um, uh, I'm sorry, it's modelcitizensmovie.com, um, and I also have a Vimeo. I mean, everything gets hosted yeah. through Vimeo, so right. uh, that's where everything lives, but it's all um, available through the website. And there's yeah. there's the collateral aspects to add to what Chris just said, that my wife has heard me talk about the, the model railroading buddies when we all get together on a Wednesday morning for breakfast. Uh, out on the edge of civilization in West uh, Phoenix. And so she came into the store the other day. She was in town. and Was I she had, buying you a Christmas gift or something? No, she brought me a uh, elf outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, oh, so that, that was the elf outfit. Okay, yeah, that's, that, that was the tie-in the, uh, there. <laughs> this is the elf and so she okay. comes in, and a couple of the guys were there. And, you know... And, of course, a couple of these guys are going, Paul, you didn't tell me your daughter was in town, you know. And so, you know, that whole thing there. And she goes over and she said, are these building kits? And I said, yeah. I said, those are all by, you know, Walters and so forth. She said, I think I want to build a kit for your model railroad. And I said, Okay, and so she picked out the new one by Walters. What is it called? Uh, Merchant's Row 4, I think is uh, the latest. And I said, okay, you don't want to start with something a little simpler? She says, no, I want to do this. And I said, okay, when you're home, you know, for a long stay at Christmas, I will just give you the pointers and guidance and we'll go do that. And then she started meeting some of the guys for breakfast. That I've, She's heard the name, but now she's seeing them. Meeting them, the personalities begin to interplay, and all of a sudden, that abstract starts taking on dimension. This restaurant where we go to, everybody, there's a couple of big groups in there. There's the 10 or 15 of us that are rail fans, model railroaders, and then there's a police group. Most of these are retired police officers. And so when we come in and we're sitting there in the Santa Fe line between Phoenix and uh, uh, up at Ashler uh, runs by there. They all give the big sign of, uh, you know, an engineer pulling the whistle and they make the sound, you know, woo, woo. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of like good natured kidding and stuff. Uh, but that's another aspect of the hobby. It's the socializations, the friendships that go along with it. And that draws people in too, that camaraderie. Well, you know the 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 these generations coming online here and uh-huh. um, becoming more active. They're very civic. They're very community minded. Yes, and um, I, I don't think that it gets enough recognition. Just like it, 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 they have an interest automatic into this because they they want to have a sense of where they've come from and where they're going and um, interchange with uh, different people. And yeah, I know that's a pun, but it's the kind of intended. There is a lot of interchange in this hobby. And um, I, I, I think that um, some generations kind of 
are standoffish about the younger generation, but the younger yeah. generation is really thirsty for this. And why wouldn't we sort of open up and say, hey, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Bring them on in, you know. Shoot, yes. <laughs> I think there's uh, maybe some suspicion sometimes about the motivations. Like, why are you, why would a young person be interested in this? But um, hopefully people Why can would get you be it. interested in steam locomotives for her, you know, but. Well, yeah. I've, I've gotten that a lot. I'm not a young person, uh, but I'm not as old as a lot of the people I've interviewed and people Ooh. wonder, oh. why, why are you interested? I mean, that part was a of that jab is, at you, Paul. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but a lot of people, especially because of my gender too, they wonder why, why are you interested in this? And, you know, I think I've mentioned this before that it's, you know, those are the only people who are asking that, you know, people, young people aren't wondering why model, you know, why are you interested in model railroading? They're saying, wow, that's cool. And it's some of the older people who are saying, why are people interested? I'm a little bit suspicious here. <laughs> they oh, have yeah. something nefarious uh, in mind. Mm-hmm. I, I see that. And, you know, it, it's also a time that I notice where there's a lot of um, grandparents um, getting to know their, their their grandchildren. And their grandchildren are just really excited to have that understanding of the past and to to have a, a real physical link to it and and it's through that sharing that it's just an immediate in the I, I see it time and time again it's it's grand it's grandma and grandpa and they're mm-hmm. they're buying them a, a train set and they're excited about it they are absolutely excited about it yeah maybe it not it doesn't have a an iphone attachment feature yet but it will eventually but just that connection there makes it more pertinent to um uh, you know the younger generation like hey i remember writing that when i was a kid and this is what happened That's and a- that sort of level is just it, it, it makes it stick it's a really good know? point i mean you see that in social media that interest in going back through your timeline, Ancestry.com, you know, all the mm-hmm. things that were not possible a few years ago, people can find out more about history in general and their own history, and people are more engaged and interested in that than they have been before because they can find the information. They can make those connections. It, 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 you're not stuck in a, a library going through, like, endless volumes of dusty books i mean it's a very active and proactive um medium now where people can get this information through a live member of their family in most cases so i I think now's the time yeah (laughs) i think you know a lot of young people who grew up with the internet are great researchers they're just natural researchers and that's kind of uh, the first generation that has come up like really maybe researching more than you know the average librarian years ago you know that they're online all the time finding out this information so they're it's more accessible to them they're more interested in it and they're really good at doing it because they've been doing it since they could get online and they're fearless about it, mm-hmm. it, it, it what i've noticed too is 
they have no problem asking Google a question or going to Wiki and looking it up. Yes. Um, in, in years past or decades past, it's been just such a, a Herculean effort to kind of like, well, how do I find this information? I got to go to this index and look it up this way. And, uh, oh, oh I, that, that magazine that has this information is out of print. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. Plus, they take pride in adding to the conversation and the whole kind of Wikipediaization of information and the whole review culture. People want to see their names out there. They want to be sources of information. So there's a real right. interactivity, too. Yeah, indeed. Part of the and there's a, a time component we that I see at the store level, be it somebody who's just been out of the hobby for two decades. And, you mm -hmm. know, that's just quantum leap changes in the hobby there. You might be out of the hobby for 200 years then for yes, two decades. Absolutely. That was changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he is actually a more challenging subject than somebody who's never been in the hobby and comes in and goes, this interests me, you know, in scale, HO, whatever it is. I spent four hours over two days with a young father who wanted to make sure he got the right train set. And I use train set in quotation marks because mm -hmm. we ended up building a package for him. There wasn't a, a box set for his son. So we spent an hour the other day at the store. Just we went back to the HO and we just we ran trains. We watched the reaction of his son. Then we went to the N-Scale Railroad and watched that. And then, of course, there's other constraints come in, the available space and stuff. It's it's a time investment. And I see older people my age, my peers in the hobby, that are in a information supplier role, an influencer, if you will, a facilitator, not willing always to spend the time to work with with this new person in the hobby but you have you know it's like i don't know enough to ask the right questions type of thing and so you've right. got to help them formulate hey what do you think you're going to like doing steam diesel transition it's multiple conversations it's not a marathon event it's multiple exposures i enjoy doing that because i have a lot of patience and i just remember even though it's been 40 years ago when I got in the hobby, trying to pull information out of people. You know, Paul, I just, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just got to add this in. It's important to say this now. Sure. I've noticed there's an equal opportunity for the younger generation to be interested in the gen sets and the modern diesel locomotives as they are turn of the century steam. I know some 16 year old, kids that are just amazing modelers and what do they model turn of a century steam they've never experienced it but they love it oh yeah and it's one of those questions chris that there's not a right answer from an ac academic or discussion standpoint it's what's well, right for you you know well, if you like steam if you like genset contemporary whatever I, I can see why. I, I could relate to why they like steam. And they, the way they like steam is in, in the same way that, you know, Back to the Future 3 
sort yeah. of introduced it as sort of this, you know, cool, um, you know, uh, I, I would say it, it would be one of those old West type movies. Yes. You know, and, and that's how they like steam because it, it represents that to them. Well, you know, and I asked Sarah the question about what kind of equipment are you using? I'm not a videographer. I've got high def cameras. I've got DSL R's. You got an I iPhone. Enjoy doing a good job, but I was <laughs> wanting to hear, you know, Sarah's take on what she uses because she's the professional, right? You know, and she's sharing that information. And even though a lot of it she's talking over my head, I still understand. And we have to do that to the to the old the youngsters, the oldsters who are either coming back into the hobby or who are making that initial entree into it. So, right. yeah, it's uh, it's all about learning and growing. You know, I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter how long someone's been into the hobby. There's right. always room for growing and expanding oh, yeah. and learning something new. Um, I, I, I'm in a position now where I'm, I'm learning about the hobby in a totally different plateau than I did say 20 years ago. Yes. And it, it, it's incredibly fascinating. And, you know, Sarah bringing into the, the video and motion and also just the, the actual human aspect of the hobby has been just absolutely fantastic and i'm really looking forward to oh yeah the, the video i, hey, I, I am, am excited <laughs> to see this movie that you're putting together <laughs> i can't wait to see it either <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be I'm sad when you. it's finished but i'll be you know it's like i've used this cliche so many times no layout is ever finished at some point the film has to be finished because i i, really I think chris had a good idea <laughs> About 30 minutes ago when he, we talked about, okay, this is part one of uh, <laughs> auto railroading Star Wars. Here. You know, it's like the Sistine Chapel, you know, you're up there. Yes. It's just like, when is this done? When it's finished, you know, still yeah. painting the ceiling, you know. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, assuming assuming all goes well, and I, I hope it does, well, maybe there will be an opening for a sequel, but I, I really need to focus on just getting this together and getting doing a good job on this before we look too far ahead. Well, and as you, you know, coalesce all of this input and everything that you've collected, and you may, yes, once you get past that, um, emotional, physical, mental hurdle of getting the first one out, you may see, you know, we could expand upon this and explore this in greater depth in part two. We will hey. see without getting too <laughs> narrow and going into too too sharp a focus. Okay. I just think Paul Gillette wants to have, like, himself as sort of a commentator on part two. There, golly, <laughs> am I that transparent? Am I that transparent? There have been some really specific requests that I, I, I'm not able to represent right now, but I, I will not, unfortunately, be able to focus closely on those particular aspects of the hobby. But um, I hope to represent 
a good cross-section of some of the major points that uh, I think people would be most interested in finding out about. You know, I, I think the interesting parts are probably the most unexplored by the mall railroad community, like you were pointing out about the, the art, the, the mainstream art side becoming more mm-hmm. available to the mall railroad community, but we don't even know about it, you know? So if there's any sort of relation to that in the film, I, I think it'd be an eye opener. Definitely, I I do plan to cover that. I hope it will be interesting to model railroaders. It's certainly interesting to me. Um, I think that a number of people will find it interesting. Some people might say, "Hey, this isn't my world. I'm focused on you know X, Y, and Z." But for for most people, I think they'll be probably pretty charmed by the fact that there's interest so far beyond the world of model railroading and what they do. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Thank cool. you. Well, thank you for your time. I, I get the sense that we're winding down, and well, Paul is because he, it's getting close to his bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for talking with me for so long. I really appreciate it. It's been oh, that's great. okay, Sarah. We appreciate your time because we are obviously very avid supporters of what you're doing. Well, I really yeah, appreciate your absolutely. help. You guys have been great, and the podcast has been a lot of fun, and the community has been so supportive. I couldn't ask for anything more. Okie doke. Well, maybe there'll be a part four <laughs> as you as you broke. Maybe after that initial release, we'll have another podcast. It'll be like Sons of Anarchy. You know, we'll just keep going <laughs> as long as there's demand. <laughs> As long as there's interest. Okay. Well, great. Both of you guys, thank you for your time. This is, I've really enjoyed this. It's almost like the Sarah saga. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That sounds great. That's kind of poetic in a way, Paul. I'm just saying. Thank you very much. (laughs) I contemplated that for a while. I, I'm, I'm sure you've been holding on to that one for me. Yeah. Okay. So, Sarah, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, you're yeah, it's pushing what? Eleven o'clock for you? No, ten forty-nine. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to. I've got to be at the store again tomorrow, uh, but I don't have to be there till ten. So, uh, Sarah, do you have to teach tomorrow? I'm going into work. I'm teaching online this week, so I'm kind of uh, teaching all week. But uh, I do have to go in the office tomorrow. But uh, it should be uh, should be uh, pretty light work this close to the holidays. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And I was ser- thank you. I was my comment was I think there will be a logical fourth, uh, maybe just post release. I'd really love to talk about your reactions and stuff after that first film festival. Definitely. If, if we okay. don't talk before, so I'll keep you okay. updated and uh, try to do a good job letting people know what's going on from here on. In- okay, great. And I tell you what. 